Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which means that uh, we are in chapters. And uh, the chapter that we are in uh, is chapter 2 <laughs> of God and the Holy Trinity. We've been working our way through the chapter, and um, we are in the very end of the uh, of the paragraph and of the chapter, which is paragraph 3 of chapter 2. And chapter, uh, paragraph 3 has to do specifically, if you can remember this, of, as the Trinity. So 3 is the Trinity. That's what it is in the, in the chapter of God and the Holy Trinity. Chapter, paragraph 3 is of the Trinity. Now we finished, I'm just, I just backed up a couple of slides here because this is the end of the phrase in the confession itself, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him. And then I'll, I'll read through these slides again. But let me also remind you that paragraph 3, and I pointed this out before and for some others that are here that are maybe uh, very familiar with the Westminster Confession, uh, paragraph 3 is significantly different than the Westminster and the Savoy Declaration. Most of the, of the Second London Baptist Confession is almost word for word the same as the Westminster. Of course, the Savoy Declaration followed the Westminster. The Savoy Declaration was Congregationalist. You could think of Puritans. Those are Congregationalists. Pilgrims, those are Congregationalists. Their declaration modified the Westminster because their belief of church government, Congregationalists, was different than the Presbyterians, so they modified it in that way. The Second London Baptist Confession had a few more years, so obviously there was the change in baptism and the view of the covenant, uh, which differed from our Presbyterian brothers, and church government, which differed from both the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. But there are a few other paragraphs that were modified specifically because they were dealing with heresies that had crept up, even the Presbyterians. In fact, a few of these things were dealt with in later versions of the Westminster. The Westminster Confession today is not the same Westminster Confession of the 1680s. They have modified it uh, through the years, and not substantially, not substantially. But this is one of the areas, the Trinity, that they actually have modified it because there were some, this, what they had basically allowed for errancy in the doctrine of the Trinity. So, this Baptist Confession is a little bit more full in this regard, so we're going to actually finish this up just to talk about why the Trinity is important, and then we're going to get into what the different philosophies are that have a problem with the Trinity, and why they have a problem with the Trinity, and why you should have a problem with them. Okay, so our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity helps keep us from the shifting winds of false teaching that continually seek to displace us into a man-centered religion of feelings and preferences. That Comfortable reliance on God's word and our understanding of what it teaches is the stronghold that keeps us from doubts that would in interrupt our dependence on him. So you understand that when you have a doctrine like this that everyone does not embrace, right? Those who call themselves still Christians, some do not embrace this doctrine. Now, who? Well, I don't have a slide that's going to list all the different religions and denominations of who embraces the Trinity and who doesn't. But, just for example... The Roman Catholics embrace the doctrine of the Trinity. Is it the same as our doctrine of the Trinity? Well, honestly, if you looked at everything I've been teaching through this paragraph, they would agree with everything that I've taught on this paragraph. However, there's a little more that they believe. And part of that comes from the relationship with Mary to the Trinity. And so that gets a little dicey for them about what Christ's role is and what Mary's role is, which those two in the, in the Catholic view kind of work together. So they differ slightly. Mormons, for example, do not believe in the Trinity. They do not believe, which is why, by the way, that we say it's a false religion. Now, we talked about the fact that the Trinity is a doctrine that's essential to someone being a Christian. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you're not a Christian. Why? The Scriptures teach the Trinity. It's a significant problem. Those who do not believe in the Trinity almost exclusively have a problem with Christ. It's not the Holy Spirit, it's Christ. Are there some that don't believe what we believe about the Holy Spirit that we would call Christians? Yes, who? who name some, name a denomination. It's easy, this is softball stuff, come on. Who believes, does not believe the same view of the Holy Spirit that we do, but we still call them believers? Charismatics. Charismatics. Why? They believe in temporary indwelling of the Spirit, right? And then, obviously, that, that branches. Charismatics branch into different things, right? Methodists, for instance, they're, they're not charismatic, but they branch a slightly different view on the Spirit than what we have on the Spirit, but not substantially. 
However, when a religion has a difference, a problem with the Trinity, it's usually over Christ. It's usually over Jesus Christ. And where we see this particularly true is for those who would view Christ as less than God. He may be a God, or he may be slightly less than the Father, but that's how they view him. So that differs substantially from what the Scripture teaches. All of these creeds that we see through the church history in the first thousand years all were results of dealing with heresy, of saying that Christ was not God. All of them were. Now, we have to keep this in mind. Your salvation is dependent on Christ being God. It's dependent on it. Now, for so, I had somebody ask me this, so I'm, I'm just going to explain it in very, very brief terms. You could call this a freebie. It's not really a freebie. But your sin, your sin requires punishment. A single sin against the creator of the universe requires punishment. Now, as you have sinned, there is no way for you to pay for your own sins to God's satisfaction. It's impossible. Jesus Christ did not sin. So therefore, he could pay for your sins. However, there's a problem. What's the obvious problem? He's one man. Right? Look, if Brantz had never sinned, <laughs> or Lauren's not here to make a comment right now, but if Brantz had never sinned, no, let's go the other way. If Lauren had never sinned, ever, in her whole life, if she had never sinned, and Brant said, you know what? I don't want her to go to hell. I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to die in her stead for her sins. I'm sorry, the other way, right? If Brantz had never sinned, and Lauren had sinned, and he said, I don't want her to go to hell, and then he said, I'm going to sacrifice myself to pay for her sins so that she wouldn't go to hell. You see this, right? First of all, is this possible biblically? No, it's not possible. There's a whole bunch of things that are impossible about that. However, the idea would be one person died for somebody else's sins. The reason that Jesus Christ can do what he did and save all of mankind is because he was God. It's not just because he sinned. He must be God in order for his sacrifice to be the propitiation for all who are believers. Without him being God, he cannot pay for all man's sins who become believers. He can't do it. He must be God. So when a religion takes Jesus and puts him at a lesser station than God, they have taken away his ability to be the propitiation for your sin, to pay for your sin. You see this? Now this is why the Trinity is so important. It's not just the fact that the scriptures say so. It's the fact that if you take it away, then there's huge, huge problems with our faith. That's the issue. The doctrine of the Trinity is what gives us assurance that our relationship, which varies with each distinct personality of the Godhead, is a relationship with the one triune God. You're led by the Spirit a lot? Well, how do you know... How do you know that God the Father is okay with you? Huh. You know how? From the sacrifice of the Son. That's how. He sees you covered in the blood of the Lamb, purified. Wow. Pretty significant, isn't it? Without the Trinity, there's no incarnation of God in human form, and therefore there was no redemption and hence no salvation. No one capable of being the mediator between God and man. So Christ's ongoing work right now of being the mediator between God and man. By the way, who's uh, already fully sanctified? Mr. Swayze? Not yet. Okay, he's close, but he's not there yet. Look, no one is fully sanctified. You're still sinning. You still have problems. And so you are absolutely not qualified in your sinful human flesh to approach the throne and bring your petitions to the Father. You need the mediator, Jesus Christ, to do that for you. And that's what he's doing for you. He is the mediator between God and man. He's the mediator. You take away the Trinity, that's not him anymore. Are angels mediators between God and man? No, they're not. Salvation is the working of all three persons of the Godhead. We read 1 Peter 1, 2. Now we're caught up. All right. 
So this doctrine, its relevance. What is important about its relevance? Why is this important? I just talked about this a minute ago, but let's keep going. This doctrine has been attacked throughout Christian history and is a required of any Orthodox Christian. It is non-negotiable. Anything that denies the most basic tenet of Christianity is heresy. So look, I knew a guy who claimed to be a Christian, and again, this is, you know, let me give you some key language. I'm going to give you some key, you can write this down if you want. I'm going to give you some key language. If someone says that their religion, their group, is the remnant, that should send off not only a red flag in your mind, that you should hear a klaxon horn going off. Because they are probably heretics. And here's why that happens. Because what they will claim after they say that or before they say that is some claim that differentiates them from Orthodox Christianity. Another one is, we're the only true believers. Klaxon. Red lights. Stay away from those people. You don't want to be near those people. I knew a guy who was one of those. As I got to know him later, I found out, you know, yeah, we're part of the remnant. What, what denomination are you? Well, we don't have an official denomination. We meet at people's homes. Red light. Warning. Can't identify with the denomination. That's a warning. Why can't you identify with the denomination? Because none of them are right. In his case, problem with the Trinity. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? You mean that God is a spirit? That's what he'd go to. You mean that God is a spirit? Of course, the Bible says God's a spirit. No, I mean all the examples in the New Testament that talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the same place. Or the apostles refer to them that way. Or you see them. God is a spirit. That was his answer. He couldn't go further than that. He had a problem with the Trinity. As soon as you go down that path, you've got a problem with Christ. You've got a problem with Christ. I said, is Christ God? He said, he's the Son of God. He said he was the Son of God. He's the Son of God. Is he God? He actually said, I am. He said, I am. Identified himself the exact same way that God identified himself to Moses. And that he told Moses to tell Egypt he was, I am. Remember that? Not the only places, by the way, in Scripture. But you see what I mean. He had a problem with the Trinity. Had a problem with the Trinity. And here's the problem, and this is, this is the issue. When you see somebody that goes down that path, they are, and they have a problem with Orthodox Christianity, how can they possibly justify themselves in the light of all of those sanctified believers that have gone before them? We're not talking about a difference of it's a temporary or a full time indwelling of the Spirit. We're not talking about how should the church govern itself, right? We're not talking about should baptism happen at birth or should baptism happen as believers. We have positions on all those things, right? But we would not, for a second, call those who differ on those things unbelievers. And by the way, if you talk to anybody who is astute in the scripture that holds those positions I guarantee you they will have a convincing argument of why they're right because I have and they're very convincing I've talked to Roman Catholic priests who are very convincing when I ask them questions that I think will trip them up they have great answers So it's not, we're not talking about conviction here, right? We're not talking about passion for their faith. We're not talking about that. We're talking about whether it agrees or contradicts Scripture. The, the confession itself recognizes that there are those who hold beliefs that slightly vary from ours. But this particular doctrine is not one of the doctrines where that can vary. This is essential. If you have a question with the nature of God, you have, a, you have a problem with Christianity. It's not Christianity. Pretty much that simple. Okay. There's a number of opponents and, and critics to the doctrine of the Trinity, so we're going to break them down. They're not specifically aimed at the Trinity, although some are. 
but most use this doctrine as a stepping stone of criticism for all of Christianity. Let's consider the primary philosophical opponents of this doctrine. So we're gonna, I'm going to break them down now. We're going to go through them. But here's what I want to make sure you understand from this paragraph. I'm not suggesting for a second that any of these, I think it's seven, any of these seven are philosophies that are aimed against the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, in other words, they're just philosophies that, have a, that cannot accept the doctrine of the Trinity because it contradicts their beliefs. They cannot accept the doctrine of the Trinity. This further gives them the opportunity to then say Christianity is wrong because the doctrine of the Trinity is wrong. Because what they believe contradicts it so much that they cannot accept it, and so therefore Christianity itself is not acceptable. Do you see what I mean? Well, let's look at the first one and that'll be a little clearer. All right, pragmatism. Pragmatism. So pragmatism argues that the meaning of a statement is its practical is its practical consequences. So the attempt, just to make sure you understand this, the attempt is to make a disconnect between the physical and the metaphysical, or the spiritual, eventually eliminating the metaphysical. So pragmatism would say, look, I see you, you're real, that's all there is to it. So the idea of a spirit, non-existent. It can't, can't be. Why? Because I don't see it. I don't see the spirit, not real. This is the idea, right? So pragmatism would deny the metaphysical. Now, interestingly enough, pragmatism is less and less reaching adherence. There's more and more acceptance of the metaphysical. There are still some that are clinging to that pragmatism because they don't want to believe there's something else. They refuse to submit to the idea that there's something else. But that's shrinking. Now, does that mean Christianity is increasing? No, that's shrinking too. But pragmatism is shrinking. This philosophical movement was championed by John Dewey and was the core philosophy in his public school movement. So you heard of Dewey? John Dewey? Basically the founder of public schools? This was his core philosophy, pragmatism. John Dewey was opposed to Christian education in general. People that would, churches that would hold schools, he was opposed to them. Parents that would homeschool their children, he was opposed to them. Why? Because they were indoctrinating their children with Christian philosophy, which he believed was flawed. Now, if, if you don't believe it, just read some things that John Dewey wrote. You can just read his own books, because he wrote books. You can read his own books and see what he said. Don't believe me. Pragmatism argues the Trinity is meaningless because it has no practical relevance. But this philosophy's determination of relevance is based on an atheistic view of life, which means the relevance of the Trinity for Christians is immediately discounted by the pragmatist. However, it is completely relevant for believers. So pragmatists are atheists. They don't believe in the metaphysical at all. They don't believe in God at all. So their argument is, well, the Trinity doesn't count because there is no God. Okay, well... Sorry, but even if you say you know everything that there is to know, except for sure if there's a God, uh, right? Nobody can know everything. That's that whole argument, you know, that logical fallacy argument that, you know, of course there's no absolute truth. No one can know everything absolutely true. Well, then how do you know that you're not absolutely wrong? Uh, well, because I know we're right about that. Or how do you know that I'm not right about God? Well, because I know you're wrong about that. See the fallacy in the argument? It doesn't make any sense. So the point here with a pragmatist is the pragmatist says the Trinity doesn't mean anything. Why? Because there is no God. Okay, so the pragmatic argument against the Trinity actually is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Because the pragmatic argument against the Trinity is based on the belief that there is no God, there is no Christianity. They would also probably go on to say there was no Jesus, there is no Bible, obviously all those things. Why? Because they don't believe in God. All right, existentialism teaches all of life is irrational. Now, there's a number of different quote-unquote religions that would fall under this, but we're not going to go down that path. Basically, they believe the only good things are self-affirming things. Existentialism is completely man-centered. Now, you might be thinking correctly that this has seeped into the church. Existentialism has seeped into the church. Now, we're not talking about an existential argument. That's a little different than existentialism. All right. So existentialism is this belief that the only things in life that are real are those things 
that are self-affirming for us. Anything that's bad is not relevant because it's not real. Can you think of some religions that maybe embrace that concept? There are several quote-unquote religions, like the religions that believe your body isn't real, that this is all in your mind. Our physical reality doesn't exist at all. That's existentialism. Obviously, the existentialists believe that all doctrinal issues bog people down in endless discussion, deflecting them from self-affirming actions. So, can you see, do you know anybody who believes in prosperity gospel? Have you heard of anybody like that before? Maybe somebody's name I've mentioned before, a time or two who owns a stadium in Texas. At any rate, the only good things are self-affirming things. Can you see that? I don't like to think about anything negative. I just think about everything positive all the time. Because that's the only things that really matter in life. Is everything I think about positive. Okay, the reality is, is that there's more negative in your life than there is positive, And that's the way nature is, or the way we live. Things go poorly. You're fighting against the world. You're fighting against the flesh. People die. People get sick. People are in accidents. Bad things happen. Even to good people, bad things happen. So this is a big problem for existentialists. That's why you see a movement in Scientology going to the idea that we, we don't even exist in this realm. Our spirit is just putting this in our minds, and our minds together are creating this reality which isn't truly real. Yeah, let me pinch you. My mind is telling me that that hurt, but it actually didn't hurt because it's not real. That would, you see how far that goes? It's ridiculous. So doctrinal issues at all, at all any, would bog people down. Why? Because we're talking about it. We're talking about it today. So instead of me talking about self, us doing self-affirming actions, things that are going to make you feel better about yourself, we're talking about doctrine. So to the existentialist, this is a waste of time. You see what I mean? This philosophy was advanced by Kierkegaard, Sartre, and Nietzsche. So have you heard those names before? They're famous. They're famous philosophical writers used in psychology, used in all kinds of educational environments, as if they knew what they were talking about. If life is as irrational as the existentialist professes, why do they exert so much rational thought and verbal expression to teach us that life is irrational? <laughs> it's self-contradictory. In other words, if the only thing we should be talking about is what's self-affirming, then why do they pretty much focus all of their existence on telling everyone else how life is irrational and you shouldn't be worried about it? Why aren't they just doing self-affirming actions? It's a little contradictory in itself. But you can see why there's not any chance that they would agree with the doctrine of the Trinity or any others. It's a philosophy that's opposed to the Trinity. Liberation theology. It redefines Christian terms with Marxist philosophy. Now, you'd like to think that this is just something that's so foreign to us. Oh, they must have this in Russia. They must have this in Ukraine. They must have this in China. They must have this in all these other places. No. Welcome to the United States. It's here, too. For the Trinity, their view is that it is abstract and irrelevant to the economic oppression from the downtrodden that must be liberated. <laughs> if, you are, if you really look into Marxism in general, you'll see that everything that Marx wrote is oriented toward the class struggle. Now, Marx wrote, Karl Marx wrote, basically, the idea of how we could become a utopia. How society would become a utopia. That's what Karl Marx was focused on. So his belief was, was that, contradictory to many of the ancient Greek philosophers who also wrote about that, he believed that the way that this would happen would be by formulating a problem, and then the problem, and the problem was the class struggle, the problem would eventually work itself out to a utopia by eliminating the classes, by eliminating the struggle, by making everyone even on an even playing field that everybody would be happy. How many times has that worked? That's a big old goose egg. It hasn't even worked in what they were nicely called communes in the United States. There have been multiple communes through the years, particularly was prevalent during the early 1900s where these communes were established, the idea being for us to create a utopian location for everyone to live and everyone to be the same. They all fail. 
Why? Everyone is not the same. So everyone works at a different pace. Some people don't want to work at all. Right? Some people will pick up the slack for others. Everyone doesn't view justice the same. Can you see problems? Yeah, there's problems. So it's never worked. But Marx's entire focus is on the struggle between the classes. So when you see, and this is, this is how dominant this is in our culture today, when you see someone make some statement or you read some statement that someone makes about the problem is the rich, that's Marxism. Now, they won't say that because what they, most of the, some, unfortunately a few members of the House of Representatives, but most recognize that Marxism is bad, or at least it's viewed badly. That's how they recognize it. Marxism is viewed badly. So they won't talk about Marxism and the struggle between the classes. They will just try to target wealthy people. Now, let me ask you a question. And I know that you know the answer. It's semi-rhetorical question, but I'm looking for nods. Are all rich people bad? Is there any rich good person who's not trying to take advantage of the poor? You'd have to say that there's probably, undoubtedly, some of both. What's the percentage? I don't know the percentage. No one knows the percentage. But you understand the point. The point is, is that everybody who has money is not looking for a way to make that money on the backs of other people. Are some people doing that? Some people are. But if you've ever owned a business and you have somebody working for you, are you trying to make money on the back of somebody else? Or are you providing a job to that person so that they can actually make money? That's what we're talking about. That's the most basic form that we're talking about right there. See, Marxism would say, that's bad for you to be a business owner. The government should own the business, and the government should employ everyone, and if the government employed everything, everything would be great. Well, man, that's such, the government has such a great track record. I'm just trying to think of one thing the government has done well, that they have not done the wrong things, that they haven't messed it up. If you can think of something, talk to me afterwards. I will correct you. I don't, I don't think that, I, I have unassailable arguments. I don't think you can touch the realization of what's, do you think, well, EPA. I mean, they were just for protecting the environment, really. Yeah, let's go down that path. That's easy. That's like, that's, that's a wiffle ball. That's not even a softball. FDA. Oh, <laughs> let's go down. That's worked out great. You know, FDA administrators now receive contributions from submitting drug companies, and it's legal? The law actually allows that, so they receive kickbacks from the companies that they're supposed to make sure that their products are good, and that's okay. See any problem there? That's gone well. That's gone real well. How about the banking system? That's gone great. How about the Defense Department? You gone the right way on that? Well, that's great. This is, a, this is a, we can all get on the bandwagon. But that's the idea of the Marxist. The government could more fairly distribute things to people if they had control of everything. So when you hear somebody else say, look, you know what? The rich should pay more. They should pay more in taxes. That's Marxism. That's Marxism. Graduated income tax is Marxism. Is that a biblical concept? It's absolutely the opposite of a biblical. A biblical concept is equality. You know what that means? We all pay the same. We all pay the same. Now, the reality is, in the founding of this country, we all paid the same taxes. And you know what? It, ma- it didn't matter how much money you made. John Hancock, one of the richest men in America at that time, paid the same thing as the guy down the road who worked cleaning out horse stalls. He paid the same taxes. Made more money. Paid the same taxes. Why? Does John Hancock get more protection from the government than the other guy? Do the police respond to him quicker than the other guy? Do they defend his house before they defend the other guy? Does he get out of serving in the military and the other guy has to serve? Because he paid more money? No. Equality is the same. It's the same. And it's not based on what you have, by the way. That's inequality. We've gone so far down this path, we can't even see that the whole system is based on inequality. And yet we're still pushing against this. We're still pushing against this. 
Christians should be in favor of equality, not inequality. Not inequality. Now, obviously, you hear a lot about equality, and usually it's in terms of what? Either race, right? Or now, sexual practices. I'm saying practices because I'm not going to say orientation. It's practices. I'm not going to give them that credit. It's practices. The idea that everyone should be treated equally is biblical before the law. But the law is the equalizer. Not society, not Facebook, not social media of any type, not the media, not the movies. That's not the equalizer. The law is the equalizer. And if someone breaks the law, they don't get treated the same as everyone else. Are you with me on that? In other words, if someone, so you say, hey, I live in my house. I don't have to report in when I leave from my house. I don't have to report in what I bought at the grocery store. I don't have to do any of those things. And then this guy, he gets arrested because he committed a crime and he's in jail. He can't do those things, right? Oh, he doesn't have equality. He doesn't have the freedom to come and go as he wants to. He doesn't have the freedom to go to the store. That's not fair. No, the law dictates the equality. You step outside the law, you don't get equal treatment anymore. You've sacrificed your equality. Interesting? Interesting. A bit of a rabbit trail. Sorry. I got some feelings about this. Talk to me afterwards. You got some form of government, some part of the government, the United States government, you think has gone the right direction. Library of Congress? No. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So, the reality of history is that when a society is based on biblical Christian foundation, liberty and justice abounds. When it's based on a biblical base, a non biblical base, it becomes enslaving and oppressive society. This is just the way history is, period. Society is not based on biblical principles. It becomes an enslaving and oppressive society. And look, this is what people have lost. And I'm sad to say it, but it, it's, it, America has to get worse before we'll get better. It has to get worse. Why? People think the government should control everything today. Now, this is not how much of the populace believes that. That is a gray area. Is there a majority that don't believe that? I want to believe that. But they certainly don't make themselves heard at the polling places on election day. Do they? They seem a lot more able to make a decision about buying a different beer than they can make about showing up on the day for elections. Hopefully everybody understood that reference. Bud Light, you understand that? Okay. You never know. So, why do I say it's going to get worse? Because people are not understanding history at all. We're not, they're not taught history. So they don't understand that when a society trusts the government to do everything, the government ends up doing everything and controlling people and restricting people and not allowing them freedom anymore. This is the way it goes. You think that it's a big deal that the government should control all the decisions about what's going to happen in your life? Pretty soon you won't have any ability to make any decisions and you're not going to probably like the way the government decides for you. You think people in California are pretty happy with the way the government's going there? As the government continues to make more and more laws controlling their lives? How'd you like to be a truck driver born in California driving a semi-truck? Now you're told that in seven years, your truck will be illegal in the state of California. You won't be able to drive your semi there anymore. It's illegal. You got a classic car you live in California? Well, you got a little longer. You got 12 years. And you won't be able to drive your car anymore. They've already passed the law. This isn't a debate. That's the government becoming more oppressive. And they say, well, I don't have a classic car. Okay, that's great. How about a guest? Look, if you can't see the pattern of what's happening, you're not looking. You're, you're, you're not looking. 
We should be way more, way more concerned about what's going on and how we can speak up and say this isn't right and get others to agree with this than we should be concerned about what kind of coffee my friend drank and posted on social media. Yeah, it is. He said it's ironic that it's called liberation theology because the end of liberation theology is enslavement. Ask the millions that fled communist Russia. Was Russia Karl Marx's idea oppressive or liberating? No, they were liberated when they left. When they fled. By the way, what philosophy dominates China? Who wrote the Little Red Book? Mao Zedong. And where did he get the ideas from the book? Where did Mao say he got the ideas from the book? Karl Marx. Karl Marx. How's that working out in China? It's not. Millions of different, different, not just Christians. Millions of different religions, people in different religions in China are being killed. It's an oppressive society. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. No one that's a believer should embrace any aspect of this. You should be opposed to this. New Age religions and cults are anti-Trinitarian. Now there's a broad category of New Age religions but that's how we're going to talk about them. These cults and sects blend the distinction between the creator and his creation. You see this. So that's an indication of a cult. I heard a good definition 45 years ago. 45 years ago. I was two. No, I've already that. 45 years ago about what a cult is. A cult is any religion that has a problem with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. That's a fairly accurate description of a cult. There are many people today that would call something a cult because they don't like it. Right? So Christians are labeled as members of a cult by liberals today, progressives. Christians are members of cults. That's what they say. So whenever you hear the media or somebody else say that somebody's in a cult, hey, you need to step back and evaluate it yourself. Was David Koresh and the people at Waco, were that a cult? Maybe they was. But you ought to step back and evaluate it, not just trust what the government says. Because when the government labels somebody a cult, whoa, be suspicious. First of all, if a cult is based on their religion, the government is not in a position to make that determination, are they? And I'm not even talking about the separation of the powers doctrine, which is a government doctrine, not a Christian doctrine. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that they're not qualified to make a determination on what's a cult and what isn't. Because if you say the government can do this, well then easily you're saying that they can recognize us as a cult. Or terrorists. Or a threat to national security. Oh wait a minute, that already happened. Christians. Greatest threat to national security. White Christians. Greatest threat to national security. Who said that? Defense Department. The military. Oh, they pulled it back. But that was in their training. They were training troops all over the world. How'd you like to be a Christian, white, in the military when you heard that? Thinking make you might even want to get out? Made a lot get out. Be careful about who defines what a cult is. The New Age cults blend this distinction. So this is where you'll hear people say, like, God is in all of us. No, he's not. No, he's not. God is in everything. Heard that? Pantheism. That's New Age. Pantheism. It's considered New Age. Is pantheism new? No. Pantheism's old. In fact, all the New Age cults, all the New Age religions are all old. There's nothing new about them, but they're new. Here you go. <laughs> Bullet point two. 
This blending goes all the way back to Arius and Arianism that was confronted with the Council of Nicaea, resulting in the Nicene Creed, and was later clarified in the Athanasian Creed. That's where this goes back to. The Jehovah's Witnesses are modern-day followers of Arius, believing Christ was not equal with God. It was really easy to refute a Jehovah's Witness until about 15, 20 years ago when they changed their Bibles. So they used to use the King James Bible, Jehovah's Witness, faithful to the King James, and they had so many problems that they changed their Bible and took out all the scriptures that we would use as a reference that clearly pointed out that Christ was God. Mormons go the other direction, believing not only was that Christ was created, but that Lucifer is his brother, further eroding the doctrine of the Trinity. Do they really believe that? Do you know any, who knows Mormons? Like, know them enough to talk to them. Anybody else? Yeah, anybody over here? Anybody? All right. So, if you have a chance to talk to a Mormon, I've never had a Mormon not be willing to talk to me about their religion. I've never had that happen. Like, I've asked questions, and they, they answer. You know, they're not ashamed. They're not afraid. They answer the questions. So, ask them, who is Lucifer? Son of God. Does he have a brother? Jesus. Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. Yes, both sons of God. Yes. Is Lucifer going to hell? No. They don't believe it. Say, I don't know if I believe that. Ask a Mormon. Don't look it up and see somebody who is opposed to the Mormons and what they said about it. Ask a Mormon. Let them answer you themselves. And if you're not sure about that, you want to take a local field trip to visit, you got to wait till they're open. Go to the Mormon church in Lapeer, northwest side, right on Oregon. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's the Mormons, by the way, just in case you're confused. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Go to that church. Go in the west entrance. There's an east entrance and a west entrance. Does it sound like I've been there? I've been there. Go in the west entrance. Big painting on the wall. Jesus. Satan. Lucifer. They look twins, standing in the clouds, holding their hand out to you. I ask, what's that represent? It's Jesus and Lucifer calling us to heaven. That's what they believe. By the way, ask them where spirit babies came from. We're not even going to go down that path. And ask them, what's Frobos? Oh, oh man. All right. Feminism. Feminism. You believe it? We're bringing up feminism regarding to the Trinity? Oh, think about it. It's going to be clear. Feminism in its core belief attacks the Trinity indirectly, but makes no qualms with direct attacks. So they don't, like, feminism is not like, you know what, we're all about equal rights for women and no Trinity. That's not what it is. But they have no problems attacking the Trinity and attacking Christians in general because the first objection is that God is Father, so males are regarded more highly than females. So they don't want God to be masculine. They don't want him to be father because that elevates men over women. Next, the fact that Jesus was a man makes worship of males in general natural results. So because Jesus was a man, that naturally means that all women must worship men. What? How do you get that? doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have to. That's where they go. The church, taking its lead from these facts, excludes women from serving in leadership roles. So, the father and son concepts are considered inherently sexist. That's why they have a problem with the Trinity. Is the Bible gender neutral on God? It is not. Does the Bible, not the church, specify if the leaders in the church should be masculine or feminine? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. The church did not decide this. The Bible says this. See a difference there? But you can see why feminism would have a problem with Christianity, right? So if someone says, well, I'm a feminist, but I'm a Christian, you have a huge problem in your philosophy. You cannot be a feminist and be a Christian. You don't understand Christianity if you think that. 
because feminism attacks core fundamentals of the scripture, including the Trinity. It's kind of a big problem. Feminists advocate changing Trinity language too. Have you seen this in any different translations? Yeah. God the creator, God the redeemer, God the sanctifier. In other words, reducing the Trinity to just a functional Trinity, not a distinction as person. In other words, we're going to call God by what he's doing in this passage instead of who he is. You see the difference? Further, feminism has spawned a movement of the goddess religion. In this religion, the goddess supplements the Trinity and actually is the world itself. It is, a, a really, it is really a form of pantheism and even suggests, if you haven't heard this before, this is out there, common culture today, that God died and gave the goddess or life force his power. So the earth is now the goddess, Mother Nature, Gaia. The earth, that's what they are teaching, that's what they believe, Gaia is now God. It's a woman, not a man. It's the goddess, not God. It's interesting because the word God, by the way, doesn't mean masculine automatically. But they had to change it because they want to focus on it being a woman. Criticism of the doctrine of the Trinity usually bear the, base their argument on one or more of the following claims. Okay, so here we are. I'm going to cover the claims. This is covered in multiple different of these, different things I just covered. And then I'm going to give you our responses here. Pretty simple. God is unknowable, inexpressible, and incomprehensible. Therefore, we can't know anything about God, and he does not reveal himself to us in any kind of revelation. So this is the first argument. You can't know who God is. He truly doesn't describe himself. He's unknowable. By the way, we just thought, we've talked about this multiple weeks. Do we believe that there are some aspects of God that are a mystery, or are a divine mystery? We absolutely do. Why? Not because he hasn't revealed it all. It's because we can't understand it. You see the difference? There's a difference between if we have the capacity to understand concepts that are beyond human comprehension versus God not telling us. Do we know what God likes and what God doesn't like? And by the way, when I say like and doesn't like, you understand that in God's terms, that translates to holy and unholy. Do we know what God thinks is holy? Do we know what God thinks is unholy? Yes, sin is unholy. Anything regarding sin is unholy. It's really clear. Of course, this is a self-defeating argument. If God is unknowable, how do we know he's unknowable? If they're arguing that God is unknowable, well, how do we know he's unknowable? We don't know that. Clearly, we repudiate this with the doctrine of the scriptures where God himself reveals to us all we need to know about him. Make sense? Pretty clear? All you see a bunch of did you see a bunch of specks for a second? And now they're gone. That was weird. All right. Let me step back over here. Huh. That's weird. Did you see them? All religious doctrines are created in the religious experience of the worshipers. Therefore, the Bible is not divine revelation. Instead, it's a collection of experiences by the writers. This is another argument, right? So this is particularly New Age. You see this? The idea being is that the Bible isn't religious. The Bible isn't God's word. It's when it speaks to you that it becomes God's word. Have you heard this? We've talked about this. This is a New Age philosophy. In other words... No one can know what's true because it really is your own opinion of what's true. This is man-centered. Again, we repudiate this man-centered view of doctrines with the belief that all Scripture is inspired and a revelation of the Creator. All descriptions of God are only metaphors. Therefore, God has not revealed His true nature, so man has attempted to describe God with their own personal experience, and those descriptions change from culture to culture and time to time. <laughs> this is another common one, right? Well, you don't know, you know, that's what God means to you, but that's not what God meant to them, or that's not what God means to those people, or that's not what, you see what I'm saying? Different cultures, different? Well, everything you believe about God that you see in the Bible 
that's only metaphorical. That's not really who he is. What, he says that he hates these things? Well, that's just metaphors. That's just metaphors. You can't really know what he hates. That's the idea. We believe the Bible is written in a variety of literary forms, which are meaningful to man, and in those statements, they accurately and meaningfully describe God as he really is. Do we believe that every single word in the Scripture that's describing God is a 100% a description of God? Hmm. Questioning. Good, good, you're right. No. No. There's such things as amphipromorphisms. What are those? That's when God is described with physical characteristics so that we understand like he's covered them with his wing. Do we believe God has a wing? No. He holds them in his hand. Does that mean that God physically has a hand that we could see that's bigger than people so that he could put people in his hand? In fact, whole nations. No, it doesn't mean that. Does God appear, or could he appear, with a hand? He sure could. He could. But that's a different thing than saying that every description of God is a metaphor. So if he created the earth, that's not really true. It's a metaphor. You see what I mean? See how messy that gets? Essentially, when you start saying that the Bible verses that say something are all metaphorical, or you take an entire book and you say it's all a metaphor, what you're essentially saying is, is that the Scripture means what you say, it doesn't mean what God says. That none of us now can know what the Scriptures mean because it's up to us. That's what this is. This is why the doctrine of Scripture is so important. God's Word is written for all men at all times. Modern translations that seek to make changes to Scripture due to changes in culture are blaspheming God and His Word. Is it possible that God could write a book, some of the authors going back 4,000 years, that would apply today? Of course it's possible. Is God, if we believe that God is unchanging, he's immutable, then holy and sin and righteousness is still holy and sin and righteousness. If he created man with a plan, and I'm talking mankind, with a plan, and he said, this is how you're supposed to conduct yourselves to exist as a human, is it possible that that same expectation of how we're to exist is still true today? Yes. Yes. It's really, really easy to take a piece of Scripture that you don't like and then to say, oh, that was just meant for the people at that time. That was just meant for that culture at that time. You know, most of the time, that is so easily argued against. It's not, I don't even understand why people bring it up. I think the only reason they do is because no one ever argues with them. No one ever argues with them. You remember the scriptures in the New Testament that teaches that men should not gather for worship with coverings on their head? You remember that? And the women should? You remember that? And you know what I hear about that all the time? It's cultural. It's cultural. Really. Okay. I want you to think of every single movie at one time that you've ever seen that depicted Jews in the synagogue. What do the men have on their heads? What do they still put on their heads today? A covering. A yarmulke. What do women put on their heads in worship? Nothing. The New Testament was commanding believers to do the opposite of the culture. For the men not to cover and the women to cover, it was the opposite of the culture. It was not cultural. It was counterculture. Why? Why did they do that? Read the scripture. It tells why they did it. It's a sign of submission. That's what it was. That's what it was. Anyone who says, oh, this scripture, that doesn't apply to us anymore because that was just a cultural thing. That was just for them. Really, let me ask you this. Is there anything that is not in the scripture that we say, I wonder what happened with this because it's not in the scripture. I wonder how this part of the story happened because it's not in the scripture. Is there anything like that? Yes. Do you often wonder how Mary and Joseph dealt with Christ when he was a teenager? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, wouldn't it be interesting to see how Christ actually behaved as a teenager? So you say, well, why didn't God include that? Well, because he didn't want to include it. That's the bottom line. 
Can you think of any other reasons? I can. I can. Talk about a high standard and expectation for parents to hold their children to. An impossible standard for parents to hold their children to. Never satisfied because their child never lives up to the examples that the scripture gives about Christ. So we don't have it. It's not there. Why? We don't need to know. We don't need to know. Is that the reason? I don't know. It's a theory. Threw it out there. You could say, that's not right. Okay, it's not right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have any idea. But we have to understand that the scriptures are what we trust as truth. If we take any part of scripture and say, it doesn't mean what it says, that's just a metaphor, you're saying you can't trust the whole scripture. Now I'll tell you, let me tell you I'm just going to tell you right now where this is dangerous. Eschatology. This is really dangerous. Why? Because there is so much of eschatology that we don't fully understand. It's not fully revealed. There are things that we see in Daniel and things in Revelation that look similar, but not quite the same. The apostles write about eschatology. Doesn't quite be the same. You, don't, you see this thing of people being caught up in Thessalonians. You don't see it in Revelation. Why? Where is that? Why isn't that there? Here's what you can't do. If your argument for what kind of eschatology you believe is based on a metaphor, you are discounting all of Scripture. Because what you're saying is, is that my belief of this trumps Scripture. How do you know that your metaphor is right? You don't know. You don't know. So what's the best thing you can possibly do? Go to church history. Go to church history. What did the early church fathers believe? What did the middle church fathers believe? There was agreement on doctrines in church history. There was. And they wrote about them. A lot of things that we question, they didn't write about at all. Because everybody agreed. There wasn't any questions. Why do we go to church history? Okay, good question. Why do we have the books of the Bible that we have? Does Revelation tell us what the names of the books of the Bible are? No, it doesn't. God used the church to determine the canon of Scripture. God used the church to determine key controversies and what the position was. God uses the church to work these things out. So when somebody says, well, I know that this view of Scripture, Christians have not ever heard of this, they're not paying attention to it, but here's this new revelation, this new enlightenment, I see it for the first time, now you can all see it for the first time, that should be klaxons and warnings. Because that sounds remarkably like they are making up their own doctrine. And it hasn't been vetted by the church. If the majority of the church doesn't agree, probably not true. We definitely don't want to hang our religion on it. Right? So what's the confession do? You know, the church is the sign of the Second London Baptist Confession. They didn't agree on eschatology. So if you read the chapters in the confession about eschatology, about the end times, it's maddeningly brief. Why? Well, the Lord's second coming is imminent. It's going to happen. When? We don't know. That's in there. And then here's what's going to happen after. You say, oh, you mean the millennium or the non-millennium or whatever? No, that's not even there. What I mean is, after he comes, there will be eternity in paradise and eternity in damnation. That's in the confession. Nothing else is there. There was disagreement. There was disagreement. So we don't hold our, we don't hold our faith on that. Interestingly enough, when you see the apostles talk about end times, almost to a fault, almost every single time, they end by saying, and don't worry about it. That's a paraphrase. Right? So they explain, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, you know, this is gonna, here's going to be the signs, this is going to be what happens, the Lord's going to come, but don't worry about that. Why? There's nothing you can do to change it. What's important is how we live today. 
Will there be a tomorrow? We don't know. Will there be a ton of tomorrows? We don't know. We have no idea. What we do know is how we're commanded to live today. And that's what's important. That's what's important. I thought I could finish. I can't. Man, I'd like to finish. Can't do it. We're going to have to finish next week. Let's close in a word of prayer.